Welcome to the State of Business with the Ohio Society of CPAs. I'm Jessica Salerno Shoemaker, Senior Content Manager at OSCPA, and this is the show where we bring you the latest news impacting the business and accounting world from top experts. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dave Staley, Associate Professor in the Department of History at The Ohio State University and President of the Columbus Futurists about the pandemic-related changes we can expect to see in the next five to 10 years and the future of work. We discussed Zoom towns, the acceleration of change, how companies can prepare, and much more. Here's what Dave had to say. Well, I think that one of the first things uh, I want to look at are the rise of what are being called Zoom towns. One of the things that we saw during the pandemic is that uh, remote workers have discovered that they can re- remotely work anywhere. And so some of them are interested in moving to places that provide them a better quality of life, lower cost of living, more affordable housing. And maybe that isn't in the same city even uh, at where their work takes place. And so I think that this is something that's going to persist uh, as, as we as, as we hope, we come out of the pandemic. Uh, and that is clearly going to have an impact on the office, on what we mean by an office. Um, I think that before the pandemic, we thought of offices as really places to, to warehouse workers. And I think that the office is going to change. We'll still have offices, but they'll become places for occasional face-to-face work. More importantly, uh, offices will become uh, expressions of a brand. Uh, companies are still going to want to have a physical office, especially if they can locate it in some attractive address, some attractive or eye-catching address, downtown Columbus, let's say, or something like that. Um, so, And this will also have implications on how organizations are going to be run. Uh, I think that uh, they are uh, uh, probably going to become more decentralized as a result, and remote workers are will be given more authority to make decisions as opposed to having to go to someone uh, over them. Uh, I think that uh, one of the changes that we saw accelerated during the pandemic was greater automation. And I think there's every reason to think that uh, we will see the automation of all sorts of workplaces becoming more and more of a reality. Um, And I think another big change that I found is what I'm calling the new mobility. Uh, we talk, we often think of mobility today as sort of moving around in the world. What's the most efficient and uh, ecological way to move me around in the world? So is that autonomous vehicles? Is that electric vehicles? Is that uh, uh, some sort of public transportation? But uh, one of the things that we learned during the pandemic is that it's the world that's becoming mobile. We had so many things delivered to us through Amazon or through other such services that I think that the new mobility will refer to the world being mobile and the world being brought to me. And that's not just simply things. That's not just simply the things I would shop for uh, on Amazon. That's also experiences. So that's education. That's telemedicine. That's the gym experience through something like Peloton or through Mirror. And I think that uh, entrepreneurs are going to discover all sorts of areas of the world that we thought were immobile and we'll make those mobile and deliverable. And I think it's so interesting that you mentioned the experiences portion. Is that something that you think would 
have eventually happened on its own, maybe if not for the pandemic, but years and years later? Or do you think that this is something, you know, that you can almost completely attribute to the pandemic because of um, just the severity of, you know, forcing everyone to isolate at least the first year? Uh, I, I think I think that's probably correct. I think um, before the pandemic, I was imagining this as a uh, as a 10 year or 15 year uh, sort of problem or transition. Um, I think the uh, pandemic accelerated it, although I will say I think we're going to discover here, especially as we start to take our masks off very tentatively, start to take our masks off that uh, maybe we're tired of the virtual experience. I've, I, I have too much Zoom fatigue. I'm ready to be back face to face. So we might find, at least in the short run, that, that, that people are maybe not going to want to have experiences delivered in this way. But having said that, I think that we learned during the pandemic is that there was just so much convenience in having the world brought to us that even if it's not the whole world, I think that there will be significant parts of the world that we're going to want to have made mobile and deliverable. And what you said just now about, um, you know, kind of swinging back the other way, people wanting those in-person experiences, that reminds me of when open offices were so popular and everyone was pushing for an open office. And now, at least the past couple years, it seems like people are saying, obviously the, the pandemic changed things, but, you know, they were saying it's too open. Open offices <laughs> aren't ideal. And do you feel like you notice um, things uh, going from one extreme to the other before it kind of finds um, the right middle ground, or, or is there ever a middle ground? I think that one possibility is that uh, remote workers are going to feel at some disadvantage from those workers who are present face-to-face -face in the office. This is a real possibility, that there could be uh, a sort of a loss of prestige in the way that having an office is a way to symbolize a certain kind of privilege or position within an organization. I think we're going to find, uh, unless we design very deliberately against this, we're going to find that remote workers are going to feel somewhat untethered and maybe at somewhat of a disadvantage, and that maybe having a face-to-face -face or having a physical office uh, becomes a new sign of prestige. Again, unless there is a very specific sort of design uh, intervention that prevents something like that from happening. Uh, I also think, to more directly respond to your question, I think the open office is probably uh, over with. Uh, in the age of a pandemic, uh, we're not going to want to be that uh, sort of exposed in such, uh, in such big places, and we'll want to maybe cocoon in, uh, in smaller spaces. <laughs> Especially when you think about how a lot of open offices, um, people, they didn't necessarily have um, their own personal desks. Like I think right. a lot of bigger companies had people, you know, coming in and out, but they were very, very close um, in close quarters sitting with their colleagues. So, yeah, especially after the past two years, I can see why that might make some people more uncomfortable. It's also possible, as I say, that being a remote worker becomes the new kind of prestige. Having an office means being tethered uh, to a physical location. Uh, it's entirely possible that that's, uh, that, 
that that's the new culture that emerges. And of course, uh, David, we're talking a lot about work culture, but is there anything else? I know that you mentioned experiences, anything else that has accelerated and changed as a result of the pandemic that you think um, is definitely important to mention? So uh, I, I don't have empirical evidence of this, meaning I haven't actually sort of measured it. <laughs> but uh, I wonder if our definitions of personal space are going to expand post-pandemic. In other words, before the pandemic, if you and I were at a, 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 at a networking event or something like that, we might be standing about, I don't know, like two and a half feet apart. That's a pretty comfortable distance, I think, in a professional setting. I think we might discover that after the pandemic and given the fact that we haven't been around people for a long time and when we were, we were supposed to be social distancing at you know six feet intervals. Um, it's entirely possible that our definition of the boundary of personal space is going to expand. That's so funny that you mentioned that because actually just earlier today, I was reading something that talked about, and you mentioned people, you know, hesitantly starting to take off their masks, kind of finding that in between um, of socializing and getting out in the world while also, you know, still very much being aware of uh, COVID. And that was one of the things they mentioned is that that six feet rule is actually still a really good thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. I have another one, Jessica, I could add. Yeah. I'd like to add. I think that something else that we're going to see, it's, it's another sort of behavior that we picked up during the pandemic that's that, that's going to persist. I know that everyone uh, is is experiencing Zoom fatigue. Uh, and I think it's I, I think it's a real thing. But something else that was that was very interesting during the pandemic is that I think our networks uh, grew much larger and indeed grew global. I don't know about you, but uh, I experienced uh, many Zoom meetings where there were people from all over the world involved in the call, uh, such that I had to you know, change some of my orientation and thinking about a good time for a meeting. Uh, for me, it was 11 a.m. because that was the, 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 the optimal time for people from the West Coast and people from Europe and people maybe in China uh, uh, were able to all be on the same Zoom call. Um, as, as you know, Jessica, I host an event series called Creative Mornings Columbus. And for the past two years, we've been we've 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 not been able to meet face to face. We've met over Zoom in that time. We've had so many people from the uh, from around the world join our events. We've had people from Stockholm and Brussels, all sorts of different parts in the United States. And I think that this is this is something that we're going to that's going to remain very much a part of our practices. The idea of connecting so easily and seamlessly with people around the world over something like Zoom or maybe some other sort of channel will just simply become a part of our of our daily experience. And I think, too, when you talk about it becoming a part of uh, your daily experience, I wonder if it will um, for events uh, like that, it will start to be expected you know, that that's an option for people to, you know, be able to watch online or participate virtually in some way, even if it might be in person. 
Uh, I wonder if, you know, the, the virtual option will continue to be requested, especially for um, larger in-person gatherings like conferences, like learning events, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think that that is very, very high probability. The idea of, I mean, th- I think there's still going to be face-to-face conferences, but I, 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 my suspicion is that there will be fewer of them. There will be more sort of big ones. In other words, the, 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 you know, the, the main professional event that everyone has to, has to attend. But smaller, uh, or even more, more sort of frequent gatherings, we might find that, uh, that the, that the virtual is, uh, just as, just as preferable, just as, uh, just as important. And in fact, I think that, uh, what people are going to discover, especially as we, ha- um, especially as professional organizations are becoming much more mindful of their carbon footprints, that rather than flying people around the country or around the world to an event, uh, they could just as easily host a, a rich, meaningful event over some sort of uh, digital channel. Now, is that going to be Zoom? Nothing against Zoom. Zoom was, you know, was amazing for us over the last two years. But maybe it's some sort of virtual environment. Maybe it's something like the metaverse, a richer sort of experience. Uh, maybe that becomes the way that we engage in professional activities. And I'm glad you brought up the metaverse because that was actually something I wanted to ask you about. And I know you mentioned you didn't really have um, during our discussion for the advanced series that you didn't really get to dive into. How do you think the metaverse is going to change the way uh, we interact with uh, our peers, colleagues, friends, family in the future? I think in the short term, at least, um, the metaverse is uh, going to be a site of privilege. I'm not certain that uh, everyone will have access to it. Uh, and some of that has to do with connectivity issues. I think it, 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 uh, it's, it's going to be a requirement to have the kind of uh, rich metaverse experience to also have um, high-speed broadband, for instance. And we're in a state in Ohio where uh, in rural parts of the state, that can't always be guaranteed. And so I think the metaverse, at least, at least in the short term, uh, is going to be a, a space of privilege for some. Uh, we were just uh, talking about uh, professional uh, organizations or professional conferences. Um, I think that it's entirely possible that especially uh, global events or, or, or events where the expectation is that you're going to draw people from all over the world, that something like the metaverse is going to be the location for those kinds of events. And this all goes back to what I was saying earlier about making experiences mobile. Uh, the metaverse as experience, I think, is going to be uh, one, of those, one of those forms of delivery. So, for instance, uh, the NBA already has a service where you can uh, watch uh, games in virtual reality, in VR. Uh, in fact, you can have courtside seats uh, and, and watch a basketball game. Uh, and right now, uh, that service is most popular uh, overseas with people overseas in Europe, China, those sorts of places. But my guess is that we will have more and more people that will uh, attend, quote unquote, attend sporting events in something like the metaverse. Uh, in other words, uh, they will be you know, sitting in their living rooms or sitting in their homes and having a uh, you know 50 yard line seat 
uh, for the big football game or sitting at center ice for the hockey game. Uh, not just simply for sports. I also suspect that cultural institutions are going to come to rely upon the metaverse as another way to experience culture, another way to experience art. And I can talk more about that if you want. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so interesting. Like you said, especially for that, it's not necessarily going to be something that everyone will have access to, at least not in the beginning. So when I talk about uh, art, for instance, uh, I don't mean necessarily trying to replicate the experience, say, of like going to the Columbus Museum of Art, but doing something in a virtual environment that you couldn't otherwise do. So, for instance, being able to look at uh, an artwork in its original context. Where was this piece of sculpture? Where was this uh, painting? Where was it originally intended to be shown? Uh, a lot of art was not a, a lot of art. Some art is, but a lot of art was not intended uh, to just be shown on a museum wall. Uh, it was, I don't know, it was in someone's home or it was in some sort of civic uh, location. Uh, what if we could recreate those spaces so that you could see where original works of art were originally uh, housed or where they were originally placed? Uh, and in fact, it may be that there were uh, several such places like this over time. You could leap back and forth. Think about um, think about the uh, the virtual Van Gogh experience that we some of us experience here in Columbus. Uh, that sort of experience, I think, in a virtual environment or a metaverse environment, is very likely to be the case over the next five to ten years. And are there any other, you know, surprising areas of change um, that you think might be coming in the future that people might not have anticipated? One of the things that the pandemic has taught us uh, and other sort of recent events like the like the Russo-Ukrainian war is that change is perpendicular. And this is a term I've been using more and more frequently, meaning the unexpected deviation from the trend line. So think back to January of 2020, the economy was humming along and then a new respiratory illness was uh, uncovered or discovered in Wuhan. And by April, the economy had shut down. That's what I mean by perpendicular change. China was our great geopolitical threat until it wasn't, uh, until the Russo-Ukrainian war happened. And now the, the, the geopolitical situation has completely changed. We sometimes think about the future as one of rapid change, or sometimes there's a recent book out that talks about exponential change. Uh, both of those sort of assume that uh, change is going to happen along some kind of line, some sort of predictable line, uh, and that what matters is either the speed of change or the acceleration of change. I think that the future belongs to unexpected change, the 90-degree turn from what we're expecting. So it'd be as if, uh, so something I've been writing about lately is, uh, what if government became a venture capitalist? In other words, what if government were sort of funding or providing seed funding, especially for enterprises and ideas that seem really risky, but but potentially high return, the sort of thing that, that private entrepreneurs or private venture capitalists probably wouldn't want to touch. What if government assumed that role? Uh, there's some evidence that that could actually be occurring. 
Uh, Operation Warp Speed is an example of this. The government was essentially acting as a kind of venture capitalist in the development of the mRNA vaccines that have proven so effective uh, in helping us combat uh, COVID-19. What if that were to become uh, a regular function of government? That's the kind of surprising change that I think uh, we can be attempting to expect uh, in the future. And what would you say to professionals, um, given all of the various topics that we've talked about, how can they best prepare for the future during this rapid time of change? Well, something uh, I ask uh, any organization is, um, who is your chief futures officer? In other words, who in your organization is uh, anticipating change? Who in your organization is attempting to leverage change uh, and maybe even to try to create a change? Uh, that's, the, that's the person I call the, uh, the chief futures officer. This is different from strategy. Strategy is about, um, is about attempting to make a change in the present, but uh, the business space is still one of business as usual. Whereas what we're talking about here are the fundamental changes to uh, an industry or fundamental changes to uh, the economy. Uh, and who in the organization is trying to anticipate and understand perpendicular change. Thank you to Dave for joining us to talk more about the future of work. And you can hear more from him at our upcoming advanced series. Just go to the link in our profile to register. And what would you like to hear on the podcast? You can let me know at jsalerno, J-S-A-L-E-R-N-O, at ohiocpa.com. And please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.